Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Season 2 of the Climate Ready Podcast. This is Ingrid Timbo from the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, or AGWA. We're glad you've joined us for a new episode focused on the challenges and opportunities associated with climate change education. As always, I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Alex Maroner. Hey, everyone. As someone on the slightly youngish side in the climate and water community, I'm particularly interested in today's topic. It's been about five years now since I finished grad school, where I first started to study climate adaptation and sustainable resource management. I can only imagine that things have changed a fair deal, even in that short amount of time, in terms of teaching about climate change. How does one keep up with the science in this rapidly evolving and sometimes contentious field? How do we deal with debate and consensus? How can we teach the science in a way that is approachable, actionable, and relevant for a variety of disciplines? We dive into this and a lot more with our guest today, Dr. Rob Wilby, a professor at Loughborough University in the UK and a widely published author on these subjects. That's right, Alex. We also discuss with Rob the importance of climate change education at an early age and how one could modulate one's approach to teaching, depending on the age group. And finally, we touch on a larger topic that is not limited to the classroom, and that is the importance of teaching and encouraging agency. Individuals need to feel empowered to act and adapt to the changes we are seeing in our climate. It cannot be all doom and gloom. That's something that I think needs to be highlighted, not only in the field of education, but also in climate journalism, governance, finance, and policy. Instead of giving it all away here in the introduction, let's go ahead and dive into our conversation with Dr. Wilby. We hope you all enjoy it. And as always, if you have any questions or comments about this or any episode, please leave them on our Facebook page and make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Climate Ready Podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an informal network for water resources adaptation to climate change, focused on supporting experts, decision makers, and institutions within the water community to find common solutions for sustainable water resources management. The podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group, for more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org. For today's episode, we are very excited to be joined by Dr. Rob Wilby, who will share his perspective on the challenges and importance of climate change education. Among the many caps that he wears, Rob is a professor of hydroclimatic modeling at Loughborough University in the UK. He's also the author of a new book, Climate Change in Practice, Topics for Discussion with Group Exercises, which is available on Amazon and other retail outlets. Rob is a close colleague of Agua's and we're thrilled to have him on the show. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm uh, looking forward to this uh, conversation. Thanks, Rob. So Alex, just uh, he mentioned your new book, Climate Change in Practice which is a great tool, I think, for teachers and educators as a way to explore topics related to climate change in the classroom. So I'm wondering what kind of motivated you to write this book and when did you first feel the need to address these subjects in book length format? (laughs) I might begin with a a slightly frivolous answer, which is that I was uh, approaching my 50th birthday And rather than going out and buying a shiny new car or doing something like that, I decided to write a a book. And uh, it seemed like a good milestone in my life to reflect on 
the very varied experiences I've had in applying climate change science in practice. And up to this point, I've been very fortunate to have worked in about 40 countries around the world where I've been doing my utmost to take latest climate change science and apply it to very real issues such as water supply, flood management, extreme heat management, energy security and such like. And it was that collection of experiences which I felt I'd really like to be able to package and bring back into a classroom to share uh, with my students and, and other students beyond Loughborough University. When it comes to teaching, to me, it seems like the approach that you're using uh, in exploring the subject matter is just as important as the material itself that's being covered. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about the approach you laid out in this book? It seems to cover both theory and practice, including some high-level summaries of a lot of different issues, uh, as well as some exercises and group activities. Absolutely. I'm a firm believer in using um, a mixture of methods in Uh, teaching and learning practice and so each chapter has um, a a concise introduction to the key concepts and fundamentals and I see that as a as an essential platform on which to then build the discussion of the the issues which may relate to the climate science or the application of the science or indeed even into moral and ethical issues so I think it's it's very important that we adopt that approach of laying the foundation, but then um, devising a range of techniques which might involve role play, hands-on exercises, class discussion to really tease out some of the big ideas. I think that's really important and kind of gets to the idea that we have to really think more broadly about how we address teaching these subjects, specifically because climate change is a topic with really, really far-reaching implications, um, which you acknowledge by bringing up the different technical, socioeconomic, and even moral uh, and ethical questions around climate science in your work. And I'm wondering if there are areas that you feel both, I guess, within the university context, but even more broadly within society, are there areas that you feel there's more consensus and are there areas you know, around climate change that are still pretty contentious that you see? Okay, so in, in terms of matters around which many of us can agree, I think we would struggle to find anyone who would deny the fact that societies are vulnerable to extreme weather, whether mm. that's floods or droughts, storm surges, heat waves or the like. There, there are many ways in which extreme weather can impact societies. And the sad truth is that some people on the planet are more vulnerable to these extreme weather events than others, basically depending upon their socioeconomic status. Right. And that, I think, is a, is a key area, a rallying point around which we can agree and begin to work outwards by asking questions like how can we reduce people's exposure to climate hazards? How, we can, how can we Im- improve their capacity to adapt to these hazards? How can we reduce their sensitivity to these hazards? Yeah. That's something around which most people can congregate and then work together. In terms of the more contested areas, well, that may be 
around how exactly to approach these tasks and and how urgently we need to get moving with addressing the range of climate threats that lie ahead. And this is down to the fact that we have choices about the economic pathways that we follow or the pathways that we adopt to gradually decarbonize society Mm -hmm. and move to greater dependence on renewable energy sources and, and low carbon sources of energy, for example. And I think that's where there are obviously huge areas of disagreement in terms of the urgency with which we move forward and the exact pathway we adopt to move from where we are to a low carbon future, which I personally believe is is human destiny. Yeah, I think that's a really smart approach instead of starting with a big debate and a big disagreement you say this is our area of consensus you know we we all acknowledge that we're vulnerable and what can we do about that i think that rings rings really true but it gets me thinking that here you know i'm based in the u.s and where i live climate change is all too often it's turned into a political issue so in some cases that means that these really important topics are difficult to bring up depending on the setting you know whether that means uh a dinner party or on Capitol Hill or or in the classroom as we're discussing today. So have you ever run into a problem where educational policies have prevented you from teaching certain topics and whether or not you have, how would you respond to such guidelines? Yes, I, I really appreciate the fact that the context in the US is very different to the context in the UK. And I can't honestly recall any occasion in which my approach to teaching or communicating issues about climate change has ever been in any way directed by some form of guideline. So that would be a a very alien thing for me to to comprehend. And indeed, perhaps in in the European scene, there is a a much higher level of consensus and, and acceptance of the the basics of climate science. And so in many ways, we rarely encounter this kind of tension between um, narratives. But having said that, in the classroom, in my course, I do go to lengths to ensure that I convey uh, alternative perspectives where they exist. And also, I'm always keen to highlight where those who disagree with the consensus views on climate change have nonetheless contributed to the advancement through of of the science through for example stimulating greater transparency of methods or improving wider access to to basic data or or scrutiny of results so i think it's not 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 always a negative thing to have tensions in terms of attitudes to the to the core issues and the science that we're, we're we're tackling how about in your classroom specifically is it pretty common to have some disagreements and different perspectives or do your students tend to start the course agreeing on some baseline understandings of climate change i always take a show of hands as well of the class in the first lecture to gauge where each student stands on the issue And I'm always pleased when there is a very diverse group in terms of the attitudes, because that enables us to then, as a group, explore the evidence in a a deeper way amongst ourselves and referring to the literature. So I actually favour having a 
breadth of, of attitudes within the classroom to, to stimulate the debate. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Do you do follow-ups as well towards the end of the of the term of the course and, and see if perspectives have changed a little bit based on conversations and the material you've covered? Absolutely. And in, in fact, um, what tends to happen is by the end of the course, the students have become more critically aware. So I'm, I'm not using the word skeptical, but they have a deeper understanding of the limitations of the basic data on which we rely, some of the limitations of the climate modeling and impacts assessments, and a greater appreciation of the extent to which uncertainty is woven through the whole project, if you like. So if anything, the students emerge from the other end saying that they appreciate the extent of its the uncertainty in the whole process now much more than they did when they began the course and I think that's a that's a good outcome yeah I agree that's it's kind of all you can really hope for is to come out with more well-informed students that are able to conduct critical thinking on their own and open dialogue too and to like you said kind of acknowledge what we know but maybe more importantly acknowledge what we don't know as well yeah definitely And I think this is, you know, having that open discussion and working to think more critically about these issues is so important, especially at the university level. But also, you know, when we think about climate change education more broadly, really to face these huge changes that that we're going to see coming, that we are seeing already, that education has to start a lot earlier. And so are there other key goals of climate change education for teaching other age groups, such as maybe... 10-year-old middle school or high schoolers? I think that's a really important question and opens up a whole set of really critical issues. And in fact, in a previous year, I actually set a question along those lines on on my students' exam paper, which is, you know, how how would you go about communicating climate change to a a class of 10-year-olds, for example, where you have to strike a very delicate balance between presenting the basic scientific principles and evidence of what's changing at the planetary and regional level, whilst also emphasising to, to the pupils that there is, there's an opportunity here. It's, it's not all bad news. There are opportunities to move to a cleaner, more sustainable future. And also there's a a whole raft of really excellent tools and resources that one can use um, with with age groups like that, such as online carbon calculators. So pupils can figure out how much carbon they use getting to and from school or using their computer going on holiday or heating their homes, for example, to understand how our choices and behaviours add up and contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. So I think this is, a, this is a very important issue indeed, and one that has to be taken forward very delicately, I think. So going back to more of the work that you do with your, your courses and the book that you published last year, climate change, it's, it's a really transdisciplinary issue often, however, it gets relegated to just science curriculum. I think you've done this well in your book, but I'm interested, how do you make climate change more approachable to those students that aren't studying natural sciences? What's the best way to engage with, you know, maybe the economics major or engineering students or the like? 
at the end of each year, we often collect feedback from the students in terms of what they enjoyed most and what they enjoyed least. And of course, I, I like to favour the what you enjoyed most. And they will, in terms of, you know, trying to understand what worked well in the classroom. And the, the topic that year after year comes out as being the, uh, the most appealing to the students is uh, geoengineering. And I think that's because it's a a mix of technical issues and a mix of, of huge moral and ethical issues. So it, it makes it highly amenable to collective group discussion around not so much can we, but should we deploy these technologies? And if we do, what are the institutional mechanisms that would be needed to, to protect people and and the planet not that i'm necessarily advocating these technologies but just using that as a as a teaching vehicle because it it almost has a science fiction edge to it that really resonates well with the the students across all sorts of disciplines so careful choice of a a thorny topic like geoengineering that um, sparks an interest is one way in which you can engage students from lots of different backgrounds Another way is to make it relevant to the everyday. So, you know, you might begin by asking, well, how much carbon did it cost to make the T-shirt on your back? Or how much water was embedded in the beers that you drank last night? So you can then start to look at the links between behaviours, resource consumption, uh, energy usage and emissions and then ultimately climate change. The other way is also to stress the transferable skills that the student are learning as well through the exercises and helping the students to understand how these skills then translate or might get them a job I think is also an important part of the teaching process. I think that's really important both for firing not just kind of imagination but broader thinking Yeah, because climate change, it's really got implications in in every single field. So if you have an economics major, you're making him or her a more well-rounded and more well-prepared student leaving the university because whether they acknowledge it or not, you know, climate change is is going to affect their work in some way or another down the road. Thinking more broadly about advances that we're making in both the science and policy realm around climate change, it's pretty rapidly evolving. And I'm wondering if it's difficult to teach a subject that, that is so rapidly evolving and how do you maybe stay up to date? Yeah, it's um, the pace of scientific development is quite staggering. And in fact, here's a statistic for you. Last year, by my reckoning, there were some 25,000 more peer-reviewed scientific publications on climate change. So... One of the things I make very clear to my students is that there is no way that I can read even a fraction of those. And it's my job to do that. And so I don't realistically expect them to read that much either in a year. So we have to approach it as being very selective in what we choose to read. And here I think we're always going to need to look at the seminal papers that set the scene, explain the basic principles and ideas. But what you can then introduce, which is more dynamic and and more easily updated, are new case studies that better illustrate 
the points that you're trying to make or uh, show how a, a particular technology has been deployed in practice. But I think overall, I stress to the students that we have to approach the subject with a high degree of humility. We have to accept that no single human being can possibly grasp this topic in its entirety. And each one of us may have a, a preferred area or a part that we are more expert in, and we are relying upon the, the judgment and the expertise of those around us and our networks to help us keep up to date with the emergent research in, in allied disciplines. I think I speak for all of your students when I say thank you for not assigning 1,000 <laughs> new publications uh, for reading homework per week. So. I'm sure that's much, yeah. much appreciated. I suppose I could um, produce the reading list for 25,000 papers on it and see how well that goes down. <laughs> and crash all their computers and iPads, yeah. So speaking of these students, a lot of the worst effects of climate change are inevitably going to be suffered by these younger generations. I wonder how that affects how the students approach the classes you're teaching. Do your students tend to be really motivated? Are they worried? Are they board i'm sure to a large extent it varies by age group but what does it feel like in the classroom i think you inevitably encounter a a, a spectrum of attitudes and motivations there are always students who are incredibly highly motivated and passionate about making a difference in the world and they will listen and debate with you and they'll seek ways in which they might develop a, a career in these areas, either through teaching, consulting, or research, or applying some of the techniques in industrial areas as well. So you, you encounter a, a very broad spectrum. And I think, again, it comes back to the point about helping them understand that they might not get a job in climate change, but many of the skills that they acquire in terms of interrogating data or critical writing and debate are useful in all sorts of walks of, of life. And I think the other way in which classes seem to perform most effectively is when people are genuinely you know, enjoying discussing the issue or participating in a role play exercise or even a game. So making learning fun and stimulating is, I think, half of the, half of the work. I think that's, that's probably true for most subjects, but I think it's probably even more important for something like climate change that can be so oppressive and, and, and depressing if you if you let yourself get bogged down in it and you don't let yourself focus on the on the solutions as well. I add two points to that. One is that absolutely I agree that we should always be positive about the possibilities and, and stress the scope for agency, whether it's a, a personal or a collective level. And the other thing I, I always stress in the, the last lecture of the series is to avoid what some have called climate exceptionalism, where you blame everything in the world that's bad on climate change. And to recognise that climate change is a, is a significant set of threats and opportunities, but it's just one area amongst many that our leaders have to, to deal with over coming decades. And in fact, climate change is woven through 
many of the key concerns that face humankind. But it would be wrong of us to treat it in isolation as the only concern. We need to take a far more holistic view, and that's uh, important to stress too. I think that's really important because I feel like too often kind of we do go down that road of saying, oh, it's climate change, oh, it's climate change, oh, it's climate change. It's like, no, we still have you know, issues with governance or with poverty or all of these other issues. And, and if we make it all about climate change, then climate change almost becomes nothing because it's it can't be everything. Is there anything else you'd like to add that maybe hasn't been brought up yet, Rob? I guess just one final thought reflecting on what we've discussed is that we focused on teaching in a university environment or teaching in a schoolroom. But it's equally rewarding to be teaching in workplaces and Mm. and training professionals and counterparts, experts in parts of the world where there may be fewer resources, fewer capacities to cope with climate change and so forth. And thinking about how to allow access, promote access to to data in some of the most data sparse parts of the world or parts of the world where people don't have the same opportunities to develop their, their skills as we do in the UK. These can be incredibly rewarding environments in which to teach people about how to take the, the latest climate change science and apply it in an appropriate and practical way in the local context in which you're teaching. So really being embedded in that country, immersed in its its issues, and to help grow the capabilities and the understandings in situ, I think that's also very important too. That's an excellent point, and I'm really glad you brought it up. Capacity building can be and should be about teaching both inside and outside of the classroom especially where there aren't necessarily the institutional structures or arrangements that make it easy to take a course like yours. Well, I think that's a great point to leave with as we challenge our listeners to continue the discourse, continue learning, and continue engaging with the broader climate community. Again, Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Well, thanks for all all your thought-provoking questions. Thank you so much, Rob. Take care. Bye then. We hope you all enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Rob Wilby. For me, he painted the state of climate education in a different picture, a kind of more humble context, pointing out that climate change is only one of a range of issues that we should be focused on. Climate exceptionalism, as he calls it, is something that I think we in this field can be especially susceptible to, thinking that all the world's problems are linked to a changing climate when in fact there are a host of other factors involved in most cases. I think that's so important. Climate change can and does impact a wide range of issues, but it's not the underlying issue. It simply adds an additional set of variables that we need to deal with. The other thing I'd like to highlight from our conversation is the importance of teaching critical thinking when it comes to issues like climate change, which, despite there being 25,000 or so new papers published on the topic last year, remains a topic that presents us with deep uncertainty about the future. We need to learn to interrogate the data, as Rob says, and encourage debate, not stifle it. Critical thinking is such an important transferable skill as well. Professors and teachers who help their students think critically about the science of climate change also set them up for success in other walks of life as well. 
It's fair to say that most students won't end up working directly in the field of climate change, but they'll end up with careers in things like finance, engineering, public health, or what have you, and they'll all be better at their jobs if they can apply this open-minded and analytical approach they've learned. I can definitely relate to that. Certainly my most useful classes, you know, going from primary up through graduate school, were the ones that pushed me to investigate, to debate, and defend a position, not simply to, you know, memorize a formula or read journal articles. The science behind climate change can seem really intimidating, especially to a non-climate scientist such as myself. But understanding that there's still so much uncertainty is in some ways comforting because it means that, you know, we all have a role to play in moving the discipline forward in both academia and in practice. We really hope you enjoyed this conversation about climate change education as much as we did. For more information about Rob's work, to buy his book, or to learn more about the teaching tools he mentioned on the show, please check out our website at aguaguide.org slash climate ready, or visit our Facebook page using at climate ready podcast. And before we wrap up, we've got another postcard from the future, this time by our very own co-host Ingrid Timbo. As a recent grad of Oregon State University's Water Resources Management Program, she's able to give us a little perspective on the state of university education around climate and water. Climate change is water change. This is a phrase I hear a lot in my line of work, so often that it feels as though it has achieved a rare kind of universal acceptance, akin to axiomatic truth or religious proverb. So I saith unto you, climate change is water change. Utter this phrase with gravitas to a room full of serious people, and they will, with little exception, nod seriously. Hmm. Yes. Quite so. Climate change is water change. But all joking aside, what does this phrase actually mean? The way that I understand it, this phrase means that climate change is felt or experienced most directly through changes to water's distribution over the Earth. Rising temperatures alter the hydrologic cycle, resulting in too much or too little water in the needed quantity at the right time and with the right frequency. Patterns of increasingly strong floods, drought, storms, sea level rise, and even fires are listed as evidence of this theory. Given the near-universal acceptance of the interlinkages between climate and the hydrologic cycle, as well as the transformational changes to that cycle that anthropogenic climate change entails, it stands to reason that in the modern university classroom, climate change would be taught alongside hydrology. Alas, at a large majority of universities, this assumption is incorrect. I myself have a master's degree in water resources management and was fortunate to get into a good master's program with a strong reputation in my field. Yet there was not a single course in our curriculum devoted to the impacts of climate change on freshwater, to say nothing of learning how we might adjust and adapt to these transformations. This despite the fact that climate change has profound implications for my work and the work of my peers who manage, restore, engineer, and protect water resources. As we heard earlier in this season of the Climate Ready podcast, in our interview with Dr. Leroy Poth, co-founder of the Natural Flow Regime Concept and Environmental Flows Management, which for the past 20 years or so has been the gold standard in flow restoration and conservation. Climate change greatly undermines the baseline assumptions we use for managing and restoring rivers. 
Today and increasingly in the future, restoration of altered streams to historical reference conditions is in many cases no longer appropriate or achievable. Yet this remains the standard to which students today are taught. This does not render these methodologies useless or obsolete. In fact, far from it. But there needs to be a real conversation about how to best teach and implement them. The reality is that it doesn't matter what angle you're coming from, be it science, engineering, or policy, all aspects of water management are impacted. Or to put it another way, water education is climate education, and vice versa. This does not mean that water scientists must become climate scientists, but water students should be taught basic climate science alongside principles of stream ecology, flow dynamics, and water governance. In our internships and applied coursework, adaptive management principles should be taught so that future project managers can design robust projects and iterate as conditions on the ground change. But it's not just climate science that is missing from water education. While they help us reduce uncertainty, climate models can only get us so far. Humans have never been good at predicting the future, and we are not getting much better, at least at a scale that is relevant to managers. And regardless of what we do to mitigate carbon emissions now, we are facing decades of locked-in warming that will affect our planet in a number of ways, some known and some unknown. What we can say with certainty is that rising temperatures present us with a variety of risks, some more salient than others. Students need to be taught the basics of risk-based approaches so that their work is designed in a way that is low risk and accounts for multiple future scenarios. Deep uncertainty about the future means we must make decisions over time in dynamic interaction with natural and human-built systems. Climate change is transforming our planet, our cities, our livelihoods, and our institutions, providing new challenges and also opportunities for my generation and those that will come after me. My hope is that it will also transform our education systems to become more interdisciplinary so that future generations of water managers can confidently address climate uncertainty and its effects on our most precious natural resources. That's all for this episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. Thanks again to our earlier guest, Dr. Rob Wilby, and to my brave co-host, Ingrid, for sharing her postcard from the future. Until next time, everyone. Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.